please pray with me. We are men and you are God. Lord, there are other entities besides animals and humans. There's a spiritual realm and you sit chief atop that spiritual realm. And Lord, I thank you that you sit there and that we don't. Lord, I ask that from atop your footstool, on top of your holy throne, you would descend upon this building, 21 Harris Town, and that you would be with us at this time. Otherwise, I have nothing to say. Be with me, Lord, and be with them. Be with me as I speak. Be with them as they hear that your word would be made manifest in our hearts, that we wouldn't leave out of those double doors acting like we didn't just hear from God, me included, Lord, preaching it twice, that I wouldn't preach it as if I just preached it, but I would preach it as if it is the eternal word of God, that it is a, a, a bomb to a hurting soul. It is the truth for men and women and children who lie in deep darkness. Lord, I ask for your presence to be in this service with the expressed purpose that we would worship you and fulfill our purpose as eternal souls made in your image. Father, you are needed here. Jesus, your blood is good here, even in 2018. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin and move us to worship. In your holy name we pray, amen. Our text for today is Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it twice. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful, Above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Verse 9 is the prophet Jeremiah. I'll read it one more time. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? God's reply is verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. And examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. I chose this text for today because in my thinking, I considered the fact that it's about to be 2019. And yet the Bible has not been changed, regardless of what some people may believe. These are Jeremiah's words. And the Bible's statement about itself is that it's true. It's eternal. And so I said to myself, a statement like this, such a big statement like this, where a man is saying that the human heart is corrupt, and he's saying that God replied to him and said, it is corrupt, and not only is it corrupt, but I will examine it, I thought to myself, surely it will elicit a response from us. Too often we can read scripture and not realize that scripture is making statements about our humanity, about our eternal destination, And ever so often, we are very content to not focus on the big questions in life, but the trivial matters, the small things, the petty things. A quick Google search absolutely amazed me. I Googled, does God exist? In a little more than half a second, I got about 560 million results. I then Googled the bigger question, is water wet? And I got 876 million results in less than half a second. And I stopped and I asked myself, what's clear about our humanity? What those astronomical numbers prove, if anything, is that we, 
like to gather information and ask questions, but we kind of get gun shy when it comes to the important things. We get neglectful when it comes to the important things. And my fear is that we as a people in our age of information is that we would be, as Apostle Paul said about some misguided women in 2 Timothy, he said that we would be always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The, not a, but the truth. Thus, dictionary.com's 2018 word of the year, misinformation. It's not that we feared as a society that we would lose information, like the burning of the Alexandrian library. We feared as a society that we were being misinformed, whether we were on the right or on the left, that false, falsehood was being spread. It was rampant. Whether it was spread willingly or unwillingly, it was getting out there. And I recognize that there are things in my life, and I'm sure you as well recognize that there are things that you don't mind being misinformed about. You're not a truth hero in every facet. Last week, I realized that Curious George and many animations have deceived me for years into thinking that wild monkeys eat the same yellow bananas that we do. They do not. They do not. That picture there is a lie. The one uh, farther to my left, that is what wild monkeys eat. They do not eat the yellow cute bananas that we eat. And when I realized this, I didn't care too much, to be honest. When I see it, if I ever get the privilege of meeting a monkey, I will still try to find a yellow banana. It won't make a difference. Do you see? I was misinformed about that for years, and I really, quite frankly, don't care. But Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, Above everything else, it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? God replies and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give each man according to his deeds. Now that I can't be misinformed about. That's a matter of my heart. That's a matter of my eternal destiny. And so the goal of my preaching today is to move us away from a trust in our own hearts, a self-love, and onto a trust in God Again, my goal today is to move us off a self-love, a trust in self, a self-reliance, and onto a trust in God by showing two things. One, our heart's utter wickedness. And two, the beauty of Jesus Christ. One, our heart's utter wickedness. And two, the beauty of Jesus Christ. So first, what is the heart? We'll take it in this order. It'll be one, the heart's disability, Two, the inspector's righteousness. And three, the inspector's work. So, one, the heart's disability. What is the heart? What is it? Now, in our culture, the way we use that word heart is very similar to the idiom in which Jeremiah used that word heart there. In our culture, we might tell somebody who's in distress, don't take it personally, don't let them get to you, don't let them get under your skin, or don't take it to heart. And what we mean by that is don't let that person, don't let that comment on YouTube get to the center of your being. Don't let it mess up who you are at your core. And what scripture means by the heart is it means the DNA of the soul, the entity within you that loves and hates the root of your being, the incredible trio of the intellect, the emotions, and the will. That's the heart. And you know, 
Jeremiah, he puts it plainly like you see up there or to my side. God says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And then he says, circumcise your hearts. And he isn't saying that yourselves and your hearts are two different things. He's saying the same thing twice for emphasis. Yourselves are your hearts. So therefore, all of us, including myself, has a heart. The same way everyone here has a self. And if that's all Jeremiah said, there would be no disagreement between the world and God about mankind. They both agree that man has a heart. He has an entity within him that loves and hates. But where the world and the God of the Bible disagree is that the world says that the bottom of our heart is goodness. And that our greatest difficulty in life is to get down to the bottom. See, I'm, I'm messed up and I acknowledge I'm messed up, but that's all surface stuff. I got to go see somebody so I can get untapped. My potential can explode and I can get down to my goodness, you see. God says, no, my opinion is that at the bottom of every human being is unimaginable corruption. These are diametrically opposed views. They don't have any middle space. Thus, my question to myself and to you, do you agree? Because those two views don't meet. It's like one person saying the prospects are favorable. The other person saying they're unfavorable. Someone saying, oh, that's the truth. The other person saying, no, that's a lie. There's no middle ground. And the world and God have disagreed on this point from the beginning. Adam and Eve forsake God in the garden and they make clothes for themselves. And when God comes, they hide as if to say, don't talk to him. He's going to complain. We can figure this out on our own. God, in speaking to them, takes off their clothing, gives him clothing that he made, and watches them from there on out as if to say, do not trust your heart. It will lead you astray. Come back to me. In God of the Bible, he doesn't say come back to me like an embarrassed parent in the supermarket who's yelling at their kid who has gone crazy and says come back to me because they're embarrassed. No, God is saying come back to me because he loves you so much and you are about to fall off of a cliff. He's trying to come back, come entreat you, please come back, please come back. And Jeremiah describes the crookedness of our heart in three respects. He says it's supremely deceitful. He says that it's incurable. He says that it's unknowable. I'll take the first. But then let me say this. Before I take the first, all those, those three that you see, they seem to have an absolute ring to it. And what people often misunderstand about the Bible, the Bible is not saying, Jeremiah is not saying that you've never done a good thing. Jeremiah is not saying that someone who's an addict can't get clean without religion. Jeremiah is not saying that you don't know yourself to the point that you don't know your favorite color. For years you thought it was turquoise, but it's really yellow. He's not saying that that's the case. What he is saying is this. He's saying whatever goodness there may be in you, it doesn't meet the standard. See, we don't get to set the standard. We might want to compare ourselves to Hitler or ISIS. You know, we love that. We're not as bad as Hitler or something like that. But Hitler's not the reason why there was tension in your car on the way here. Hitler's not the reason why there's ungratefulness in your heart. Hitler's not the reason why. ISIS isn't the reason why. There's corruptness in your own being. What he's saying is, in the eyes of God, all of us, according to God's standards, that were bankrupt. And the standard is this. God says, all people, every man, 
is to love me with all their soul, their mind, their strength, or all their heart. And that everyone fails that standard. It's like a man coming up to you and saying, I'm broke. And upon seeing his Chase account, you see that he has 13 cents. You go, you're not broke, man. You got 13 cents. Don't be so narrow. That man is broke. He doesn't have enough to live. In the same way, whatever goodness we may have, it's filthy rags in the eyes of God. It doesn't count. It's not worth anything. It won't get us in. And so now, supremely deceitful. How is it supremely deceitful? Now, if I look within myself, I see that my heart is supremely deceitful because, like a good liar, the lies are frequent. Every morning, I'll show you something, every morning I tell myself without fail, I can be showered, dressed, eat breakfast, and get to this building for work in 10 minutes flat. (laughs) Never happened. Tomorrow, I'm going to do it. You see? And the one time I did do it, all the lights were green, but I attributed it to my driving, you see? You know, I beat the light. I went that way, you know what I mean? I attribute it to myself. See, we're frequently lying to ourselves. But in another respect, we're a great liar. We don't just lie about trivial things like our favorite color. Again, if you tell me your favorite color is turquoise, it's not, I, don't, I don't think that your heart is telling you it's not really turquoise. Because the heart doesn't care about those things. Those things is not what convinces your heart that you're a good person or a bad person. It's irrelevant to the important things in life. But when it comes to the important matters in life, our heart does the most deceitful backflip you can ever imagine. This is what the heart does. You may come up to somebody, take person A, they play cello every day, they're wonderful at the cello. And you tell that person, man, you're a good cello player. And they reply, you know, the humble, thank you, thank you. Yeah. And and, and they take it and they receive it. You go to that same awesome cello player And you confront that cello player about the fact that they've been lying every single day. And you say to that person, you're a liar. And the person goes, no. What gives you the right to say that? And if you say, well, the same way you habituate playing the cello every day, you lie every day. And so the same way you said thanks to being a cello player, you should thank me for pointing out that you're a liar. The person goes, no, I'm not. They're not the same. Talk to a woman who... Discon, you know, not content in her relationship, God forbid, she won't watch porn, that's very bad. But, you know, she just fantasizes about another life. You know, tell that woman that she's a great dresser, and she, you might get the reply, thank you, thank you, I'm really not, but, you know. And tell that woman, you know, miss, you're very lustful. How dare you? But in both instances, the principles were the same. Habituated behavior got described. It got put forth. But we're very reluctant to own the more important things, especially when they're negative. Our heart is shifty like that. And in the third one, our heart has an amazing ability to adapt to evil. It's inherent in us. We assimilate to it. We can grow in it. How many times have I had to tell some small child when I used to do daycare work, say thank you, be nice, I've never had to tell a kid, you should lie right now. I've never had to tell a kid, take that toy out of his hand, just yank it. No. He, he, that, that, he, that's, a, that's a setting in the kid. That's, that's, that's loaded in the kid. And we never stop and wonder, why do they come out that way? They all come out that way. We all came out that way. Why didn't any of us come out just virtuous, just downright 
good, pure, and nice. You know, never threw food at mom at two years old. Just ate it quietly. (laughs) Submit. And yet, despite the terrible twos and all that, we still look at our children like, you know what? My pookie bear at the bottom of them is goodness. That's it. That's it. Just gone astray a little bit, but he's all right. He's okay. All of us come New Year may make a resolution. We may say to ourselves, I want to get fit. I want to exercise my mind better. I want to be a kinder person. But notice when you try to pursue any of those virtuous things, when you face a little adversity, soreness after first day of the gym, the kindness that you gave wasn't reciprocated the way that you liked, all of a sudden you're demotivated. You're demotivated. Nah, I don't want to do it anymore. But, but, have you ever been tempted to cheat on a test in school? Youth, more specifically. I see some shaking their head in the back. Yeah. Now, in school, question 13 comes up. You don't know the answer, but you really want a 97. So you're like, listen, I could take a little peek. And you know your mom is probably going to be very upset and beat you if you got caught, but you're thinking, other kids cheat, let me take a stab. So you peek, and you got the answer, and it felt a little good. By the fourth time you peek, it's more rewarding because you're cheating better. You know, you've learned, you've learned the hacks. So you're cheating longer, you're cheating better. Don't look, don't look off Sarah's paper, Brianne's paper, she's smarter. You got it. And, and, and you are, and you are, and you are getting the answers. And funny enough, when you start to feel a pang of guilt, a pang of guilt. You get the, the grade back, it's 97, you feel a little pang of guilt. Your heart says something like, teacher Mrs. Slater, she's not nice anyway, and that test was too hard. You always told yourself that if you could only find just one beautiful person, you would spend your life with them in and, and, and faithful bliss, but then you got married, you recognize that your lusts were seemingly greater than what the marriage bed could supply. And though stepping out has its dangers, you start to reckon, is man even made for monogamy anyway? I mean, it sounds, it sounds antiquated, the whole idea of marriage. I don't think so. Whatever my vows were, I don't think it was right to begin with. I think it's oppressive. Just Western society, you know, it's ridiculous. We have this amazing ability to get into evil and to justify the evil that we sit in. Now, Before I press on to verse 10, I I ask all of us to look inside ourselves and say, do any of these ring true? Is Jeremiah right about any of these descriptions of our heart? Does Jeremiah have a case when he says the heart is deceitful above all else, beyond cure, who can understand it? But then you come to the second thing. Jeremiah doesn't just say, that the heart is deceitful above all else, he then says it's incurable. It's incurable. It's beyond cure. It can't be fixed. The darkness at the bottom of us cannot be fixed. And this is proved by humanity's constant effort to fix and fail. Humanity brings the trio of forces. This modern world brings up education, money, and government, and says... It'll solve people, I promise you. It'll solve people. When people go astray, they just weren't educated properly. Things go bad in the community, they don't have enough money. That's the issue. Something goes wrong in the world, better government, democracy. That really wins the day. Communism, ridiculous. 
Socialism, ugh, bedankity, please. Capitalism, we need structure. That's it. That's the way we're going to do it. Humanity is going to soar, going to thrive. But all of these entities fail. Take education. You find the most educated people. A man like Albert Einstein, what a, what a brilliant man, so brilliant, he was dumb. He flunked out of school, he became, you know, Einstein. We use his name as a proverb to, to denote an, an incredible intellect. But one thing that Einstein said close to death that he bemoaned for all of his intellect, he said he absolutely wished he didn't contribute to, his, to the creating of the nuclear bomb. See, Einstein, for all of his brain, he thought, catch this, he thought that if everybody has a nuclear bomb, no one will use it. A lot of people have guns and they use it, but he, he didn't think that far. He just thought, boom, if everybody has a nuclear bomb, nobody will use it. Education, Einstein, brilliant, morally foolish. Take money. We get a lot of money, we hoard it, we spend it loosely. We think it to be God. Take government. You set up a government system forgetting that the people who are supposed to enforce the government system have a wicked heart themselves, and if they themselves are corrupt, then the system will end up not being employed, no matter how right it is on paper. And we'll say, yeah, I get it, I believe it. But I've noticed that in the raising of this generation of youth, we believe that education, money, and some nice government system is all we need. And it shows up in one wonderful way. It shows up like this. Your kid is bad at math. And it's like the walls are falling in. Because if your kid is bad at math, they won't get into a top school. Schools like kids who do good math so they can be engineers and make a lot of money and have influence. And your kid sucks at math. So you sending him to summer math camp. He hates you, but you don't care because he's got to be good at math. He's got to succeed. My goodness. Why can't he be like my oldest? My oldest is great at math. And you're killing that kid. That kid is traumatized. He's not, he sucks at math. But he needs to be good at math because you reasoned in your mind, if he's bad at math, he won't do well in life. He won't have money. He won't get a good job. And therefore, he won't have liberty and self-governance and, 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 and you know, influence in life. And it's as if we're telling our children and our youth implicitly, though we would never say otherwise, it's as if we're telling them that they don't have a soul and that there aren't wonderful, smart people on Wall Street who are absolutely corrupt, that there aren't mighty and powerful people who were awesome at math and they are putting together horrible technology that are harming people day in and day out. It's not true. And if we read the scriptures, we would see that God shows us that he has tried other means, greater means than education, money, and government to reform us, and they haven't worked either. Take the other side. It says, we always say, if God spoke to me, that was all, that's, that's all the proof I'll need. Right? If you just heard God speak to you, Kevin, you'd be like, Jesus, Lord, immediately. But in Genesis chapter 18, God tells Sarah, you're going to have a child next year in your old age. Sarah laughs at him. God says, why did you laugh? Sarah goes, I didn't laugh. God spoke to her. She lied in God's face. That's how deep our our depravity is. Take the second one. We'll say, if I only saw a miracle, if I was Moses and I saw that burning bush, oh, I'd be holier than holy. But then how do you explain Israelites? 
They passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, the Jordan River. They saw bread fall from heaven. And yet the Bible says, Jesus says, all you people want is a sign. And he doesn't even want to perform signs and wonders sometimes because that's not really how people are going to believe. He healed 10 lepers and only one came back to say thanks. But yet our deceitful hearts tell us, but if I saw a miracle, surely I'd be a better Christian. Show me something, Lord, please. And then the last one, holding secretly in your heart that your greatest and strongest days of Christianity will be on your deathbed. Oh, right now you're working and you're busy, but when you're in a nursing home, you'll read your Bible. You will be holy. But on on the day of Calvary, when Jesus was dying, Luke chapter 23, there were two criminals on his side, both on their deathbed, and one of them died spewing hatred at Jesus. This heart, it's incurable by any means by us. Even theophany and appearance of God doesn't seem to do the trick. It takes something different, otherworldly, to get us out of our heart's deceit. And lastly, Jeremiah says about the heart that it's unknowable, deceitful above all, incurable. And then he says it's unknowable, it's baffling, it's perplexing, it's puzzling. See, our hearts are kind of like our eyes, able to discern outward but not see itself. And we're governing ourselves, thinking that we see everything, but we really don't. Are you ever surprised at the evil that you think of and the evil that you do? Parents, are you ever disheartened at how you behave the way that your parent behaved and you thought you would never behave that way? I've been married seven months and I've already seen myself do things that I told myself I would never do in a marriage. Never. And it happened, and it happened so fast, I didn't even know where it came from. I stood aback as if someone else did it, but it was me who did it. It came from inside of me. Lastly, one of the best examples of the heart's incognizability, the fact that we can't get it, its obscurity, the fact that we can't capture its shape, is in the fact that today, despite our many therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and all the money we're paying to people to help us explain ourselves, all the self-help books, we're no morally better as a society. None. We are at a loss to ourselves. In eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we got too much knowledge, more knowledge than we had goodness to sort out. Jeremiah says that we are supremely deceitful, that we are incurable in our deceit, and that the heart is absolutely unknowable. Now, what does God say in reply? What does he say? Because forget what Jeremiah says. He's just a man. He calls himself a prophet, whatever. But what does God say? And God, in effect, replies in verse 10. He says, in effect, this. I agree. I agree. And to add to that, not only do I agree, but I will search this mind, I will test this mind, and I will give each person according to what their heart has done. We arrive at the inspector's righteousness. God's reply, in effect, is, yes, Jeremiah, the heart of man is supremely deceitful and curable, but I do know it. I can see it. And not only do I see it, but I will judge it fairly. I will judge it righteously. I will be impartial in my judgments. And my goodness, friends, people, please hear me well. If there is any verse 
that can reveal to us the depravity of our heart, it's that verse 10. Because what God is saying there is that he'll be fair. Don't we want fairness? Don't we want justice? Shouldn't that make us yell for joy? Burst in exaltation? Isn't the problem with our world is that there isn't fairness, that there isn't justice? And God is saying, I'll be fair, I'll be just. But if our hearts read that verse and we're apathetic or we are put off, it only proves our depravity. See, God, in effect, says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's saying that no one will enter into my presence unless their heart is pure. And we want the same thing. When you throw a dinner party, you only invite people that you like because you want good vibes. You want good energy. Isn't God well within his right to also have the same in his kingdom? To only have those around him who love him and adore him and love what is true and what is righteous? Do we all desire justice? If so, is justice no longer good because we find ourselves to be criminals? No. If anything, our hatred for justice would prove that we are indeed criminals. To illustrate this finally, I'll put it this way. In a book that I, I enjoy reading, a pastor, a loving pastor, is talking to his young son, and he's trying to show his son, he's trying to tell his son and convince his son that he, son, you don't really love God. Sounds like a strange thing to convince your kid of, but it might be very useful to convince your kid they don't love God. I myself thought I was saved at five years old. I was not. It caused worlds of problems and so much duplicitousness and confusion in my heart. But he's trying to convince his son, he, you don't really love God. And the kid says, Dad, you don't know my heart. I love God. And so the dad put him like this. He gave him a little story. He said, imagine there was a king who was perfectly just and righteous. He always punished fairly, and he always rewarded fairly. How do you feel about the king's son? And the son said, that's a good king. I want to live in a place like that. That's the kind of king we need. The father goes, okay. But what happens when you find yourself betraying the king, unhappy with his rule, and you decide to go another way, and you end up committing a crime, the punishment, the just punishment, which is death? How do you feel about the king now? The child replies, I don't really care for the king so much anymore. And the father put it perfectly. He said, you see, nothing changed about that king. He's still righteous. He's still just. He's still holy. The only thing that changed is now you found yourself on the wrong side of justice. That doesn't make the king any less, any less lovely. It just proves that you just don't love him or the truth that he stands for. That is the heart's disability, and that is what the Bible says about the righteousness of the inspector that is God of the Bible, Yahweh. But thanks be to God that the same way Jeremiah describes the heart as three different things, God isn't just holy and righteous. By the mercies of God, he is also gracious. Gracious. The last point, the inspector's work. 
You see, God is like one who comes in. He's an inspector, somebody who inspects a house and trying to see if this house is fit to be sold. And he enters the house, the the heart of man. He enters the house and he, he looks at it and he recognizes this house can't be sold. This house deserves to be condemned. And you're saying, no, 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 please, please, please. It's my house. I love it. I know it's wicked, but please, please, come on, come on, please. And he says, no, 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 no. This house ought to be condemned. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt other people. And he says, I'm going to destroy it. And you're saying, oh, come on, no, 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 please. You're you're being cruel. You're being mean. And he says, stop. If you would come to me and let me do the work, I won't just destroy it. I will build it back up again. I will take out the wicked heart of stone. I will smash it. I will smash it, and I will remove it, but then I will give you a transplant. I will put in a heart of flesh that beats after me, that loves me, that cherishes me, that loves goodness and righteousness, even when it's inconvenient. That's what he promises. That is the promises of the Bible. The Bible says that we are wicked beyond what we could ever imagine and that he is more loving than we could ever dream of. But to deny our inherent wickedness is to diminish the amount of love that he's looking to give to you and to me. To close, I find no better example than the life of Apostle Peter. You take the first example. If you guys could flip with me briefly to Luke chapter 5, you'll find the life of Apostle Peter, page 835. And I'll quickly read these 11 verses. This is what happens. Luke chapter 5, page 835. It says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people were crowding him, around him, and listening to the word of God. He saw the water's edge, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught nothing and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now here's a quick story of exactly all I've been saying today. Simon, a member of the church, one of the apostles, but the secret is Simon still has a sinful, wicked, depraved heart. He's in the church. He sits third pew, but he's still got a wicked heart. He's in the church, but he's not of God, and Jesus sees it. And Jesus, in his kindness and in his love, he doesn't take it as an assault on him and, get, you know, and just push Simon away, even though he'd be right to do so. He instead reveals Simon's heart to himself. And he does it by giving Simon the most lucrative day of his trade. As a fisherman, it was the most lucrative day he ever had. And despite how lucrative that day was and that Jesus caused all that money to come to him, when he came and saw Jesus, he fell down and said, Get away from me. 
I'm wicked and you're righteous. And Jesus' reply to him is, push your carnal fear away. Now your heart has the fear of God. Now your heart is pure. Now come follow me. Come be with me. Let's have community together. Now you live purely. My friends, the pure heart only comes upon a realization that our first hearts are wicked. We can do nothing good with it and we have to give it to God. Peter, in his hour of temptation, forgot this. He stopped listening to God and he fell, even in his Christian walk. And finally, in Peter's parting counsel, he figured it out good and well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he says, before he dies, he says to the churches, You therefore, brethren, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He figured out that there was no safety in himself, but there was only safety in the arms of Jesus. That he couldn't hold a strong profession of faith unless he saw within himself a growth in grace of Jesus. As John Newton said in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, he says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Heavenly Father, I ask you from the bottom of my heart that as a congregation, as a people on their way to God, that we would forsake our self-love, we would forsake our wicked hearts as a foolish and harmful thing, hurting ourselves and hurting other people, and more importantly, Lord, hurting you that we would forsake it and that we would receive a pure heart, the heart of God given by the Holy Spirit, by regeneration and the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Humble us to see it, to see our depravity every single day and to see the Savior dying for our depravity and granting us the Holy Spirit to be free from our depravity. God, you are faithful. Holy Spirit, you are needful. Jesus, your blood is good. In your blood we pray, amen.